Welcome to the markets. Along with Max Armstrong, I'm Orion Samuelson. Dateline, Scottsdale, Arizona, Friday, July 26. It's our weekly get-together to check the market story from the wheat fields to Wall Street and began an interesting week in the marketplace. Let's check the numbers first of all from the standpoint of the closing numbers for the day and the week. The Dow Industrial Average up 50 points, ending the week at 27,191. The S&P 500 up 22 points, uh, 0.74%, ending at 3,025. And the Nasdaq up 92 points and ending the week at 8,330. For the week, the uh, Dow closed up a tenth of a percent. S&P 500 gained 1.7%, and the NASDAQ climbed 2.3%, as the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ again posted record closing highs. So let's look at some of the reasons why it happened today. Strong earnings from Alphabet and Starbucks pushed the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ indices to those record highs, getting support as well from data showing U.S. economic growth slowed less than expected in the second quarter. The Commerce Department said GDP increased at an annual rate of 2.1% in the second quarter. That's better than economists' expectations of a 1.8% rate. The GDP data further solidified wide expectations. The U.S. Federal Reserve will cut interest rates at its policy meeting next week. And uh, one analyst said this is just what the market needed, that uh, not so soft that the economy is slowing down precipitously and not so strong that the Fed is going to reverse course. The data comes on the heels of the European Central Bank President Mario Draghi's speech Monday, which was less dovish than investors had anticipated. And that led the S&P 500 to post its first loss in the week. Now, we're two weeks into the second quarter earnings season. About 75% of the 218 S&P 500 companies that have reported so far have topped profit estimates. Starbucks rallied 8.9% to a record high after the world's largest coffee chain posted its biggest same-store sales growth in three years. Alphabet Google up 9.6% after beating Wall Street targets on higher ad sales and growth at its cloud unit. Twitter up 8.9% today after it posted better-than-expected quarterly revenue. Those upbeat earnings pushed the S&P 500 Communication Services Index up 3.25%, and that was the most among S&P sectors. So, all in all, quite a day on Wall Street. Also, I have to mention that uh, today, Friday, McDonald Corporation jumped as much as 2.1%, briefly hitting a record high after beating quarterly sales expectations. 
Minus side, well, Amazon.com down 1.6%. Intel Corporation down 1.1%. Looking at the oil market, oil market today, uh, we found Brent crude futures settling up just seven cents a barrel, $63.46. U.S. crude settled at $56.20 a barrel, rising eight cent or 18 cents, and it gained about 1.2% on the week. So now we look ahead to next week, and uh, what will be, we will be looking for? Well, another heavy week of earnings reports. But there's the meeting in Shanghai, China, on the U.S.-China trade situation, and the Federal Open Market Committee expected to announce its interest rate decision at the end of its two-day meeting on Wednesday. Apple expected to report a slight increase in third quarter revenue on Tuesday. The companies had signaled that iPhone sales were starting to stabilize in China. That, of course, is one of its key markets. <clears throat> on the U.S. economic calendar, the closely watched jobs report scheduled for release on Friday. Labor Department expected to say non-farm payrolls likely increased by 165,000 in July. <clears throat> that would be down from the 224,000 jobs in June. And the unemployment rate expected to hold at 3.6%. Friday, the Commerce Department expected to say the trade deficit narrowed to $54.6 billion in June. That would be down from $55.5 billion in May. Back to the earnings reports. ExxonMobil's second quarter profit expected to slip below year earlier levels on weaker results in its refining natural gas and chemicals operations. Automaker General Motors will report second quarter results on Thursday after weak results from several other automakers. Analysts and investors will be watching to see the impact on GM's bottom line of falling new vehicle sales in the United States and China. MasterCard expected to post an increase in quarterly profit on Tuesday helped by higher consumer spending, and investors will be looking at growth in payments volume and cross-border volume. Pfizer will report second quarter earnings on Tuesday. The company expected to comment on progress of its $10.6 billion deal for cancer drug developer Array Biopharma. Investors also will be focusing on the company's strategy as its blockbuster pain drug faces competition. Also on Tuesday, Gilead Sciences will report second quarter earnings after market close. And uh, Merkin Company also expected to report higher second quarter profit on Tuesday. Then some other heavyweights on the uh, earnings report scheduled next week. General Electric reports second quarter earnings on Wednesday and investors will be watching for the size of GE's three cash outflow. Verizon Communications expected to report a slight increase in second quarter revenue. 
U.S. insurer MetLife will report its second quarter results on Wednesday as well. And Prudential Financial, the largest U.S. life insurer by assets, will report its second quarter results on Wednesday. Global grain trader Archer Daniels Midland reports its second quarter earnings results on Thursday, expected to be impacted by a flurry of headwinds from the ongoing China-U.S. trade war to severe U.S. weather that caused processing plant downtime, also rail and barge shipping delays that impact that earnings report. U.S. home builder D.R. Horton expected to post a decline in third quarter profit on Tuesday. Video game publisher Electronic Arts expected to report a decline in first quarter revenue. Procter & Gamble will, uh, is expected to post an increase in fourth quarter sales and profit on Tuesday. And then this one I like, Yum! Brands. It reports second quarter earnings on Thursday. Pizza Hut expected to report same-store sales growth for the first time in four quarters as the pizza chain reinvents itself to focus more on delivery. Taco Bell and KFC also expected to drive Yum! Brand's same restaurant sales. Kellogg Company will, uh, well, expected to post a decline in second quarter profit because of higher costs. Under Armour has moved to a direct-to-consumer market from an off-price environment, expected to boost quarterly sales as well. <clears throat> so, on and on it goes with those earnings reports. There are many more on the schedule, but those are the ones that we'll cover now. Oh, Beyond Meat <clears throat> will be reporting on Monday. Expected to report a jump in second quarter revenue as the popularity of its vegan meat alternatives booms. And Anadarko Petroleum Corporation, in the middle of being bought out by rival Occidental Petroleum, expected to post a lower second quarter profit, impacted by lower oil and gas prices. So as you can see, it's going to be another busy week on the export uh, trade situation and also on the earnings reports. We're going to uh, stand by and uh, join Max Armstrong and his guests to talk markets and agriculture for the week. We'll do that when we continue on the markets. Your best defense against breast cancer is a mammogram. I'm Dr. Sandy Goldberg, a breast cancer survivor and founder of a Silver Lining Foundation. And early detection saved my life. Are you uninsured? Are you underinsured? Are you a survivor and need follow-up testing? Feel like you have nowhere to turn? Times are tough, but getting a mammogram shouldn't be. Call us at 312-345-1300. A Silver Lining Foundation is here to help. You've heard the voice before. It's attached to the body in the studio with us this weekend. Mike Pearson. Welcome, sir, from Zaner 
group it is. That's correct. Got a new title. Thank you, Max, for the chance to uh, to get on the air again with the voice of the Midwest. I always appreciate it. Love to having the chance to talk to you, get caught up, and, you know, chat markets, chat agriculture, chat everything that's happening in our world. First, talk about your new role there. You bet. So I have uh, recently accepted a position with the Zaner Group in downtown Chicago. I know you've, uh, a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with Ted Seifert or Brian Grossman, some of the other market strategists at the company. I'll be there helping work with farmers who have maybe never utilized futures and options to manage risk, trying to figure out why they haven't, and then what I can do to help get over those concerns. Because it's a great tool. It's available to everybody. We need more folks taking advantage of it, especially in a volatile year like this one. How few farmers are there who have not utilized those tools? So most of the industry numbers are about 7% of farmers are actively using futures and options to hedge. 7%. 7%. So 93% of farmers are not practicing risk management strategies beyond, you know, crop insurance or perhaps forward contracting. And that's just... As the industry gets more strapped for cash, as bankers start looking a little more closely at balance sheets and at bottom lines, my feeling is if there's a way to squeeze another nickel out of every bushel of corn, we need to be doing it this year. We need to be doing it for the next several years so we can keep our feet under us, keep our ground under us, and keep our operations going. I would imagine lenders would love to see a well-grounded risk management program involving those risk management tools. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's one of my main... uh, goals is getting out talking to lenders because there's also a number of lenders who have never worked with the futures markets either. And, you know, the idea that you could have a margin call on grain that's been sold in Chicago, that's upsetting to a lot of folks. So how can we manage their expectations as well and make sure everybody's playing on the same team? Look at this summer 2019 and compare it. You've been doing this for a while. Compare it with other market rally summers that we've seen. Oh, This one has been tough to sustain, hasn't it? It's been really tough to sustain. Uh, You know, if we look back to 15 and 16 uh, and 17, we get these fears of a short crop. We, we, We always get them in the spring. You know, there's always some kind of a planting delay. This year was an exceptional planting delay. So it stands out a little bit more than than most other years. But at the end of the day, I think what is in the back of the market's mind is that in all these other years we've had challenges, we still end up growing a darn good corn crop. Now, soybeans, we still have a tremendous amount of risk ahead of us. I don't want to get over my skis and say that beans are made. They certainly are not. We have a long, scary August approaching us. But on the corn side, it does sound like the yields are going to be a little bit lower, but they're probably still going to be there. At least that's the market's expectation now. And I don't see anything that can really change that expectation, Max, until we get into harvest and start getting, well, and maybe crop tour season. We get in close towards the end of August, but then into harvest. That's going to be the next time we have a chance to really maybe move these markets back to the upside. Looking at those fields, you really have to enter the field or fly a drone over it to look at it. I was at a tractor ride just a few days ago in DeKalb County, Illinois, where many fields didn't get touched or they were washed out. And I did see some very good tasseling picket fence type fields as you went along the road. Then I stood up on the tractor platform and looked out over the field and the holes were very obvious out there. Yeah, I had the chance to fly from Chicago to Sioux Falls just a few weeks ago and flying over north central Illinois, 
you know, I suppose we touched a little bit of northern Iowa, southern Minnesota on that trip. The amount of bare fields was surprising uh, because, you know, when we think of this year's real challenges, my mind goes to the eastern Corn Belt, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio. Those are the guys that I know really got hammered. But we've got a fair number of acres that just didn't get in the ground in our part of the world as well. And then just like you're saying, you get up there and you see the drown spots. And it kind of took my breath away. If I'm honest, flying in that little twin engine jet to Sioux Falls, it was a really good bird's eye view most of the trip. And it surprised me. But Something we always talk about when we get these heavy, wet weather is, yeah, we lost two acres of corn. That's going to zero out. But then you go the next five acres. Well, they had adequate moisture and they had adequate moisture when this heat hit as we're getting close to pollination, as we're getting into tassel. And that corn's probably going to do pretty darn good, all things considered, relatively pretty good. Two things come to mind to set this summer a little bit apart. We're not accustomed. We don't have many analogous years for wet and extremely delayed and replant planting seasons. That's true. And, you know, you can think, because we've gone to 93 quite a bit. You were just a punk kid. I I was. And so I remember in 1993, (laughs) we were farming in southern Iowa, and I remember watching the Grand River slowly overcome its banks, and Dad was talking about it, but I I wasn't paying attention to the market structure in 93. I was 11 years old. Um, But I do remember that's a year we've talked about quite a bit, but it was a very different scenario. Crop got in okay in 93 and then was hammered with moisture. This year is a bit of an outlier, and it's one of those things where— The geography was bigger this year, too. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. And, I mean, just the flood stage on the Mississippi was longer. We've got all of these other factors that are a much bigger deal in 2019 than they were in 93. But the market doesn't know how to interpret these factors until we see what actually comes off these combines come harvest. You and I have visited here for uh, almost six minutes. We still haven't talked about the trade war. And that really is an overhanging factor, is it not? I know we've got some talk scheduled this next week in Shanghai. The Treasury Secretary will be there. I believe the trade representative will be certainly in the discussions, two days of discussions. And yet the market is finding it very hard to get excited about any trade talks. We've heard this uh, cry wolf uh, scenario, I think, too many times. That's you hit the nail on the head there, Max. I, we've this is the boy that has cried wolf for the past eighteen months. We need to see a signed agreement, I think, before the market's going to actually start to get excited. Beijing made an announcement, I believe it was last Friday. They said that uh, several of their main soybean crushers would be able to buy beans from the U.S. tariff-free, sort of a an olive branch to the U.S. Maybe we'll get these guys buying some grain. We'll take the tariffs off of them in China, and that'll uh, keep the president keep president. President Trump happy. Well, unfortunately, none of those firms have stepped up to the plate to make any bean purchases, even though they're not going to be having to pay the tariffs. That, I think, was eye-opening to the bean market. I think we were anticipating we'd get some sales, even a couple of pity sales, just to get them on the books. And the fact that we haven't speaks to two different things. One, it speaks to the uncertainty that this this ongoing trade war has created. You know, I know everybody who listens is probably sick to death of hearing about it, but it is an uncertain piece of the puzzle just sitting out there overhanging the market. And the other thing I think the lack of purchases highlights is the damage that's been done by African swine fever. You know, you look at that Chinese hog herd and I'm not one to necessarily trust the numbers coming out of the Chinese government on the spread of that disease. But according to private veterinarians, according to to feed industry folks over there, as much as 50% of their breeding herd is dead or dying. That's huge. And that's going to have a really long lasting effect. And that's something that's going to kind of put a pall over the bean market, even if the trade war gets resolved 
you know, next week, which I think is probably pretty highly unlikely. Max. Let me switch quickly to talk about the hog situation for a moment. We have been thinking for quite a while that there would be this huge pork demand coming out of China. Mm-hmm. And maybe the hog industry got a little bit ahead of itself here with uh, expansion. Yeah, I think they did. I I don't want to judge anybody else's operation, but I think you're right. There was all of this hope that we were going to suddenly enter this market in a big way. But at the end of the day, we're still feeding ractopamine to 80% of our hogs, and China's not going to allow those hogs into country yet. I, I've got a feeling if their protein shortage gets dire enough, they will be happily happy to take hogs that have been raised more efficiently. But as of now, they're still saying no racto. They are starting to make some purchases of more of the, the non-ractopamine pork. We're seeing more producers look at that type of an operation just so they can capture that market premium. And it's worth looking at, but you're right. We got really fired up earlier this spring. We ran hogs up to 93 bucks, hoping that we were going to start to see some big orders from China, and they just haven't materialized. And what's frustrating, I think, from the market's perspective is that we also haven't seen big sales going to other countries whose pork is now going to China. We were anticipating some of that backfill order to come to us, and it just hasn't yet, Max, and I think it will. Eventually, China's going to have to do something about a protein shortage, and they're clearly trying to ramp up their their poultry production. We are starting to see them import more beef, but from a cost perspective, I just don't think they're going to do that in a large scale. It's going to have to be pork, and eventually, they're going to have to come to the U.S. I mean, we are the best exporter to work with, but it just takes time, and with the trade war – one more reason for them to look elsewhere first, which is frustrating. Some people have been saying that with the length of time that will be necessary, would be necessary to rebuild the pork industry in China, that indeed we might see some of those other nations that you mentioned becoming suppliers, that they might step in to fill the gap, that there would still be the demand for protein and, and pork in the world, that there would still be soybean demand in those countries that step up to the produce uh, the pork for China. So the bean demand may be coming back someday? Oh, absolutely. It'll come back because at the end of the day, bean meal is the most efficient, the highest protein crop or livestock feed there is. It's just how quickly can we rebuild these herds anywhere? The big hit in China is gone. I think you're exactly right. It's going to take several years. I mean, potentially decades for China to regrow their hog herd. But whether Russia steps up or we see, you know, Vietnam and other places in Southeast Asia step up to raise hogs, they're going to be buying bean meal. And uh, that's going to come to our shores one way or another, which is good news. It's just not great news in 2019. We haven't yet talked about Brazil. And isn't that part of the problem that those crushers, that handful of crushers in China really didn't come after the soybeans? For one thing, they could get them elsewhere and Perhaps cheaper? Yes. One of the major headaches we've got, and I think I feel feel like I've said that several times in this interview, we've got a lot of headaches in ag this year from planting delays to trade war to the trouble going on in Brazil. The Brazilian real, their currency, has absolutely fallen apart this year. Uh, There's currently some talk about, you know, the incredible amount of distrust in their president and, you know, their broad economic picture isn't very strong. So the Brazilian real is very cheap, which for listeners who aren't well-versed in currency trading, that means that for a country like China, they can step in and buy a lot more of, let's say, soybeans from Brazil for the same price they would have had to have paid in the U.S. for much less. So it's a better value proposition, and we're seeing that happen. That has definitely been a huge advantage for Brazilian growers all year, and it doesn't look like that's going to change anytime soon. So, Mr. Pearson, when a producer asks you, 
about the potential for a market rally yet this year, and especially a post-harvest rally that some people like to talk about, or maybe hitting the peak around that uh, January crop report when we finally get a a number on production for 2019. What do you tell growers? So I tell them that I think we've put in our highs for the summer on corn. Soybeans remains to be seen. Let's see how August weather shapes up. On the corn side, I think we've put in our high. Uh, There's a discussion going on in our office. Are we going to see D's corn touch 440 or 412 first? And I'm on team 440 because I'm a longtime farmer. I like to see the price of corn rally. But realistically, 412 looks to be more likely for us to hit first. There are just so many bearish factors now sort of piling up on us as we roll through the rest of the summer. And there's not enough potential bullish news to come in and cause us to spark a rally. Once combines start to roll, once we start getting yield reports, once we start finding out that maybe they're not able to get a hold of grain in the eastern corn belt, then we're going to see some life return to this market. So if there will be a rally, it will come post-harvest, I think probably in that October to December timeframe. Um, the January USDA report, we should have, hopefully, fingers crossed, a pretty good handle on the numbers by then after the combines have rolled. Soybeans, play it by ear. We're going to have some opportunities to make some marketing um, in August. We're going to have a hot, dry spell. Take advantage of it. Um, at the end of the day, we are still competing with Brazil. They are still able to plant more bean acres. They are still going to have a cheaper product than we have. So if you get the chance to make the sale, let's do it. On the wheat side, we had a great reversal on Wednesday, a huge reversal, in fact, on Wednesday. I I hate making the argument to get some wheat sold here down at these prices when when wheat's still priced uh, comparatively to corn. But at the end of the day, it's been a tough slog, and that Chicago market in particular. Let's see how this thing runs out for the rest of this week here as we head into the month of August. And I would not be adverse to uh, pulling the trigger on getting some sales on. Mike Pearson, good to see you again. Among the hats you wear is Vice President of Market and Engagement for Zaner Group. You tweet on a regular basis. You can find me at Pearson Cattle. Pearson Cattle. That's correct. Tweeting often with good stuff, as a matter of fact. And you do some radio on a regular basis. I do. Do a podcast called Ag News Daily every day. Agnewsdaily.com. Check it out. Thanks, Mike. Good to have you here. Thank you, Max. Roundup. Talked about again this week in a courtroom in California. A California judge Thursday reduced a $2 billion jury verdict, slashing the award for a couple who blamed Bayer's glyphosate-based weed killer Roundup for their cancer and uh, cut that uh, award to $86.7 million. Under the judge's final order, California couple Alba and Alberta Piliod would receive roughly $17 million in compensatory damages and $69 million in punitive damages. That's down considerably from the $55 million and the $2 billion awarded in the first verdict of that trial. The plaintiffs still have to formally accept the reduced awards and uh, Bayer said it uh, will file an appeal, but uh, that remains to be seen where it'll go. Bayer faces Roundup cancer lawsuits by more than 13,400 plaintiffs across the United States. The German company bought Roundup maker Monsanto, based in St. Louis, in a $63 billion deal last year, but its share price has since tumbled over the glyphosate litigation. 
And then there was the announcement this week by the USDA of another aid program for farmers impacted by the trade situation between China and the United States. And the U.S. government will pay American farmers hurt by that trade war between 15 to $150 per acre starting from mid to late August. And the Fresh Aid program would be the second round of assistance for farmers after the USDA's $12 billion plan last year to compensate for lower prices for farm goods and lost sales stemming from trade disputes with China and with other nations. And while we talk a lot about grain market impacted by the trade situations, also noted that uh, the National Pork Producers Council talked about aid that will go to pork producers. Eligible U.S. pork producers will receive $11 per head based on inventory between April 1st and May 15th of this year. Now, in addition to the aid program, the department said it will make pork purchases of $208 million to support its program for the food insecure people. And even the sheep industry got involved a little bit in this one. The American Sheep Industry Association was one of 48 organizations awarded funds this week through the Agricultural Trade Promotion Program of the USDA. And then my final note here, in case you want to get into the ranch business, the 12,000-acre Flying M Ranch near Archer City, northwest of Dallas, Texas, is on the market again. The Flying M Ranch has a main lodge overlooking 20-acre lake with six bedrooms, a commercial kitchen, and the ranch gets income from more than 900 head of cattle. Plus, there are 44 wind turbines on the property. So if you're interested in owning a wind cattle ranch, there's one available in Texas. And uh, finally, as we look at the ending markets today, the uh, grain market, we saw December wheat down three and a quarter, December corn down three and a quarter, November soybeans down half a cent. And in livestock, cattle futures ended the week uh, down. Uh, let me take a look. Ended the week higher. The uh, October live cattle contract up just 10 cents, 100 weight. And the October feeder cattle contract up 37. The October lean hog contract up 80 cents. That's where we'll start trading on Monday. Have a great weekend. Along with Max Armstrong, I'm Orion Samuelson on the markets.